New astronauts, new rockets. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA announced the selection of 10 new astronaut candidates who will begin their training at Johnson Space Center in Houston next month. The group, four women and six men, come from a wide range of backgrounds. They were selected from nearly 12,000 applicants. One of those candidates is Luke Delaney. Most recently, he was a pilot for NASA Langley Research. Now, he'll train for future missions to the International Space Station or even the moon. We'll talk with Delaney about his childhood, watching space shuttle launches from Florida, and dreaming of becoming an astronaut, and what's ahead for his next chapter as a NASA astronaut candidate. Then, we've got a handful of new rockets coming online. From SpaceX's massive Starship to a new vehicle from Rocket Lab with a unique nose cone, there's a lot happening in the commercial space world. We'll talk with main engine cutoff host Anthony Colangelo about the busy time in commercial space. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Luke Delaney grew up in Florida, watching space shuttles take off and launching his own model rockets. He'll soon train to fly on his own, possibly heading to places like the International Space Station or even the moon. He's one of only 10 NASA astronaut candidates selected this year, out of 12,000 applications. He's a retired Marine pilot and most recently served as a NASA Langley research pilot. I spoke with him shortly after NASA announced his selection. Tell me a little bit about growing up here. Did, did you ever keep your eyes on, on the Space Coast as a kid? You know, I, I did actually, Brendan. I was uh, grew up around the DeBerry, Florida area, and we went to a few launches. And when you're a kid, you know, elementary school age, watching a space shuttle leave the planet, um, I don't know if you ever were out there for any, but man, it rumbles your chest. We were across the, the causeway and everything, and you're just getting, uh, it's that whole feeling, right? You get the, the feel of the launch, but then you got, you're thinking, man, these folks are going up to do research and orbit and all kinds of investigating and, and exploration. So that, I mean, what, what kid isn't uh, just captured, you know, awe, awe, just awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I was one of those kids. I mean, I, I grew up in Florida. I, I watched shuttle launches. I wanted to be an astronaut. I think a lot of my classmates did too. Um, I mean, was that kind of the, the driver of, of your career? Because, I mean, you, you've had a, a, a very decorated career in, in the military uh, since then, but was kind of NASA astronaut always on top of mind for you? You know, it really was, if I'm being honest. Uh, I had certain interests that just kind of aligned with it as well for the NASA astronaut stuff. I didn't know what the path would really look like back then, mm-hmm. but having an aviation interest, I mean, I did a lot of model rockets as a kid. Um, having that engineering um, affinity, just wanting to learn more and more about different engineering aspects. And then the, the, I think the military was just the path for me uh, mm-hmm. to kind of get me very competitive. Mm-hmm. Were, were your model rockets successful? Because I, I, I did them as a kid too, and mine were not very successful. <laughs> I'll be honest. I think uh, the multi-stage rockets maybe weren't as successful <laughs> as the single stage, but uh, that was a learning experience. <laughs> so, so you went from from the military um, and and then to NASA Langley. Um, tell me a bit about about your work as a um, as a research pilot for for NASA. Yeah, absolutely. So when I retired from the Marine Corps as a test pilot, I, I think one of the uh, drivers was really when I saw a Langley position open up. Um, I knew that was an avenue to kind of at least get my foot in the door and start doing some airborne science missions. 
Uh, and those missions over there, they do have kind of space connections in a lot of ways. We're collecting data at an atmospheric level, but we're also uh, using space-based sensors to validate some of that and even validating those sensors, if you will. So we're, we're doing a lot of those exchanges. So just having that connection um, and, and working some of those missions was invaluable, I think, uh, setting me up here. Mm-hmm. And those missions are are quite unique, right? I mean, you're you're modifying the aircraft to to do some some very interesting and, and cool science. Um, I, I mean, do you think that that had a huge part in in being selected for for NASA candidacy? You know, I, I'd like to think so, but I, I think the, the the uniqueness of the mission set that you just talked about is really key there. And I don't know anybody else around that can modify an aircraft as quickly as we do putting these sensors and instruments on and go conduct the science worldwide. It's, it's crazy when you look at that small team and the level of effort that goes into that, uh, but it's extremely rewarding. And I think the, uh, the data for the research and understanding our planet better is invaluable. Mm-hmm. There were some 12,000 applications. Um, 10 of you were selected for, for this astronaut class. Um, can you tell me about the moment you got the call that, that you knew you were going to be one of them? <laughs> Yeah. So this moment's a little bit different, perhaps, than some of the other candidates. Uh, we knew or expected calls within a week or two of the time frame uh, when I ended up getting it. But uh, I was in between meetings working at Langley, um, didn't have my wife around at the time. So my immediate response was a little less uh, desirable, perhaps, which was, hey, can I can I get back to you in a little bit? I want to share this with my wife uh, before committing. And I Everybody was kind of a little bit taken back. Like, well, no, 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 no. I just, uh, you know, it's a really big family decision. And uh, I wanted to make sure everybody's on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about that decision with with your family. I mean, ha- have they been quite supportive through this? How excited are they? I mean, tell me a bit about, about the, the, the sharing of the news you had with them. Oh, they are com- just unbelievably excited. So I initially thought they may be a little have some reservations and and perhaps they do. But um, what they are so encouraging, so supportive, and they have been throughout the military career. uh, And that's why I was kind of like, maybe we should just take a brief moment to discuss because there's some compromise and sacrifice here as well. Um, Just looking at doing some of these missions, you know, to the moon and and potentially long duration exploration flights. uh, I I think... uh, for me, there's no better job than a NASA astronaut position, but uh, it's just it's just amazing, and they're extremely supportive. Mm-hmm. You mentioned there's there's comprof- compromise, there's sacrifice um, being an astronaut. There's also quite a bit of risk. I mean, have have you had those conversations already with with your family? Yeah, and you know those those inherent risks I think are understood. But when you when you look over the years and the technology development and where we're at. Um, the risk management aspects are, are so much better and, and keep getting better, right? NASA keeps evolving and their processes evolve uh, and just staying on top of those things. It's really a high confidence level uh, for me and, and uh, the family in terms of the mission. So really excited. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about your class. I mean, have, have you had time to to spend with um, with the nine others? And, and can you describe this group? Amazing group. So I'll be when we went through the interview process, just meeting all the applicants was absolutely amazing. Impressive backgrounds, diverse group. Um, the group we have here, that the ten of us, is just phenomenal. We prob- met for the first time actually only a couple of days ago, and just immediately clicked. So 
Um, you got folks with all kinds of different perspectives coming from a medical field, the science backgrounds, uh, uh, you know, Olympic athletes, essentially. So we just got such a diverse group of folks. So I really appreciate the perspective. And I, I think we're going to have just an awesome team moving forward for training. Mm-hmm. I, that was one thing that was of note with this class is, is there were such diverse backgrounds. I mean, do you think that that's kind of a... a a sign of, of the way forward for NASA and, and there's going to be a very collaborative class going forward. Yeah. You know, I think it is a sign. I think it's where we need to be and it's where we are. So having, having uh, all these diverse perspectives is only going to add value to the mission. And when you're going to do something that people really haven't done before in a lot of respects, you need that, you need that aspect. So I'm happy to see these folks, happy to meet them for the first time and some of their families and just having an amazing time. Do you folks have, have a nickname for your class yet, or is that does that come later on in training? You know, I'm going to defer and say that's going to be later on. I suspect <laughs> uh, as we start to go through training, and we, we get, come back in January, uh, some things will probably come out, and uh, we'll see what we see what ends up being assigned. <laughs> so you do start your training in in January, expected to last about um, two years. After that, you're you're eligible for flight assignments. Where are you hoping to go? Well, I uh, I'll make no. Uh, no specific requests. I'll take anything. I mean, low Earth orbit, the moon. But if I really do get an option, uh, my focus would be on the moon and kind of expanding NASA's mission. To me, that's a that's a bridge point to start establishing, uh, you know, exploration further out from Earth. And and we got to be able to uh, have that stepping stone so we can start looking further out in the solar system. So if if there's a mission that they're asking or offering, I'm going to take the Artemis and the moon mission. Mm-hmm. Is there any aspect of training you're, you're particularly excited about? I'm sure as a pilot, there's going to be some some cool simulators and, and hardware you get to get to try out, right? Yeah, that's a good point, Brandon. I think uh, the simulators are awesome. The flights are awesome. Um, the uh, robotics training, the spacewalk training, uh, those all all appeal to me. And they fit right with kind of the background uh, that I'm kind of the track I've been going on with engineering and science. But Honestly, the one that's a little more outside the box, maybe the geology, and I'm excited to kind of expand my envelope there a little bit and start looking into, you know, the different compositions and, and how we, we kind of investigate those aspects. That was NASA astronaut candidate Luke Delaney. Still to come, from new astronauts to new rockets, the latest from the commercial space beat with main engine cutoffs, Anthony Colangelo. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. We've got a handful of new rockets coming online next year, from SpaceX's massive Starship to a new vehicle from Rocket Lab with a unique nose cone. Plus, more tourists headed into space thanks to Blue Origin. It'd be accurate to say there's a lot happening in the commercial space world, so to make sense of all this news, we're joined by main engine cutoff host Anthony Colangelo. Anthony, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back. I'm always, uh, it's always a big, big hit of mine during the week, big highlight when I can come on here. Likewise, and uh, we got a lot of big things to talk about today, um, starting with uh, what used to be called the big effing rocket, right? <laughs> oh, I wish it still was. Starship. Let, yeah. let, let's talk a bit about Starship. Um, a few news stories jumped out at me uh, over the past few weeks. One is uh, Elon's rush to get more Raptor engines, and... Um, Especially exciting for me, the launch pad 
being developed at Kennedy Space Center here in Florida. So let's start with with Starship. I mean, where are we at with with the development of this? It's an interesting spot right now because we're all waiting on this big FAA approval or maybe not approval of their environmental assessment down in Boca Chica, Texas. That's a huge bottleneck for them right now because they have a couple of vehicles that are ready to fly, potentially to go to orbit, um, but they can't launch out of there until they get this approval done. So whether or not they have their stuff finished off down there for that flight attempt, we're kind of just waiting to see what happens there. So uh, that's maybe not completely unrelated to why they're coming back to Florida, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, But, you know, they haven't stopped developing new vehicles, even though they're waiting on this paperwork. The next booster, the one after this first orbital attempt, is rolling around in Boca Chica right now. So they're still working on a lot of hardware. They've got Raptor engines testing through the state of Texas and then ending up down in Boca Chica to be integrated with these vehicles. So maybe not as fast and furious as the previous year has been because there is this holdup, but uh, still making progress. And and obviously, as you mentioned, there's been some hot drama on the uh, Raptor front that maybe we should dig into. Let's dig into the hot drama. (laughs) Let's fire up the thrusters on that, Anthony. Yeah, I think it was a little overheated, but what happened here was that um, there was a, a letter that came out that Elon had written to the internal SpaceX team on, I think it was Black Friday, uh, about the dire state of the Raptor program, specifically around the ability pr- to produce a large amount of Raptors for not a lot of money. That's that's the goal here, because there's going to be 30, 40-some Raptors on a single Starship stack. So you need to be able to produce a ton of uh, engines if you're going to be able to do enough test flights to get this thing operational. And as we know with SpaceX test program, a lot of things fly, a lot of things blow up, eventually they land. That's the way that SpaceX does it, but that means they need 30 or 40 engines every time they attempt this. Um, so you start running the numbers and you're like, okay, if you can get this down to a million dollars per engine, then that's simple math. You multiply how many engines you need times 100. They might need a couple hundred engines next year. So if it's not a million dollars, they need billions of dollars to develop that amount of engines. Uh, and that's where you get to this uh, the thing that made the headlines where Elon said, this Raptor issue could lead to the bankruptcy of, Star- of SpaceX at large. Now, I think this is where I think it's overheated. He, he gave you the beginning and an end of a flowchart. He didn't give you how many steps in the middle of that flowchart there are. So, you know, what eventually it boiled down to through a couple of different tweets clarifying this was... If Raptor is delayed and if they aren't able to produce enough, then Starship is delayed. If Starship is delayed, they can't start using that vehicle to launch payloads. Importantly, that would be Starlink, their satellite internet constellation that they're trying to deploy. They need Starship to launch the second generation of those satellites. And if they can't do that, they can't make money from Starlink, which is a major driver of their future growth. Um, SpaceX is in a position right now where they're spending tons of cash they're getting billions of dollars in investment over the past couple of years to spend on Starship and Starlink. They haven't had a lot of commercial launches in the last year or two. A lot of them had been Starlink. So they are just burning cash in every way possible. Um, and what Elon is worried about is if markets for that investment dry up and they are delayed on these programs, they can't get to the revenue-generating portion of, of a lot of their plans, and then the whole house of cards falls at that point. And, and that's, you know... Down the line, like I said, it's a big flowchart to get from here to there, but I guess, in essence, it's correct. Let's talk about the launch pad here at uh, Kennedy Space Center. Um, I mean, it, it was kind of a 
we, we here here in Florida we kind of thought it was happening, um, but it was it was very nice to get some uh, some confirmation from Elon Musk recently. Uh, tell us a bit about what we know about the launch facility at Kennedy Space Center? Well, not a ton, but what we do know is that SpaceX has a lease on pad 39A, which is where they've been launching a lot of Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy vehicles out of. Uh, that's former shuttle pads. That's former Saturn V pads. This pad was made for gigantic rockets. That's why it was built. That's why it's where it's at. It's far away from all the other pads on the Cape. So it makes sense that this is where Starship should launch from. Uh, I think it feels like a, a passing the baton that needs to happen. Um, but like I just mentioned, they're they're held up on the environmental reviews down in Boca Chica. Even in that, the paperwork they've filed for Texas gives them the, the capability to launch five times a year, which is not enough to do the various uh, things that they want to do at Starship, which requires refueling in orbit. Every time you need to refuel, that's an extra launch that you need to add on. So to go to the moon, you're going to need, you know, 12 launches or something like that to do one of these moon campaigns. So you need to be able to launch a lot. Having two launch pads would help that greatly. Uh, this one in particular would be at Kennedy Space Center that has the infrastructure to handle very frequent launches, which might not necessarily be the case down in Texas. There's a ton of, uh, obviously, infrastructure built up around Kennedy Space Center. The fuel infrastructure, you're going to need a ton of fuel to get into these vehicles. So having all of that to build on is a huge boon for Starship generally. Um, And I think, you know, Falcon 9, like I just mentioned, is going to be going away because of Starship. So theoretically all of the pads that currently launch falcons should be launching starship at some day and if they need this to double their throughput of how many starships they can launch um if they need it in in the case of these vehicles need a lot of protection around them in terms of when they're fueled you don't want this thing exploding and hurting anyone so there needs to be you know wide open areas and that's what kennedy does so good at so it just makes a lot of sense um it does seem like you know they weren't going to build these two out in parallel at the beginning they needed to sort some stuff out figure out their plans figure out what they need what they don't Maybe now that they've ironed that out at Boca Chica, they can streamline that a little as they come back into Florida. Mm-hmm. And for completely selfish reasons, I'm very excited that it will be launching from here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, flights to Florida are a lot easier than flying from Philadelphia down to Boca Chica. So I'm also thrilled. <laughs> Excellent. Can't wait to see you out there for that. And, and I can just come stay at your house. Yeah, of course. So I don't really need Open invitation. In great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about another private uh, rocket company, Blue Origin. Um, it's seen some... Some great success in some high-profile flights of its new Shepard rocket, um, but uh, also seeing some setbacks and other aspects of the business, like the development of its BE-4 engine, um, which will be going to United Launch Alliance. Uh, tell me a little bit about what we know about the BE-4 developments and delays. Uh, well, we were hoping to see their flight engines make their way down to ULA's factory by the end of this year. A recent interview with the head of ULA, Tori Bruno, uh, it sounds like those engines are not going to be there in time for that. Uh, And that's a real gating element to ULA's new launch vehicle called Vulcan that is hoping to make its first launch within the next year or two. Um, BE-4 is the thing that is holding them up. Uh, I think we've talked about this several times when I've been on the show. Uh, It's been a recurring theme, but it does seem like they're finally getting down the home stretch there. It is an important engine because not only does it drive ULA's Vulcan, it drives Blue Origin's new Glenn vehicle. Uh, and that is a pretty big component to all of Blue Origin's more interesting plans in the future. They they kind of base that on having a vehicle of their own. So in the same way we talked about Raptor, if they're not able to produce these in large numbers and quickly, that delays the program, not only the rocket program, but everything that relies on. Um, and for ULA, that means all of their national security and hopefully NASA missions that they'll fly with that vehicle. For Blue Origin, it's all of their interesting plans that they they have to have millions of people living and working in space, as they say. You can't do that if you can't get there. 
So this is really a, a big problem for them if they can't get it sorted. But I, I kind of believe that they're going to get this sorted out within the next couple months. So, so Anthony, you mentioned the B4 is important to, to you know, Blue Origin's future, and their future includes um, some really interesting things in low Earth orbit. Tell me a bit about the um, development contract they won from NASA and kind of where they're looking uh, from here on out. Yeah, so this is a big story that's happening uh, right now, but hopefully over the next three or four years. We're, we're trying to figure out what to do after the International Space Station, and NASA has... The intention to commercialize the habitation side of low Earth orbit, just as they've done with transportation for cargo and crew through commercial cargo and commercial crew, they now have something called uh, commercial LEO destinations. Uh, so there was a couple of companies out there that were bidding for these contracts, and uh, there was 11 people that bid for this, 11, 11 companies that bid for this. Three winners were selected. One was Northrop Grumman, who would be building a space station based on their Cygnus vehicles that currently take cargo to the ISS. Uh, one is NanoRacks, who's working on a space station called Starlab. And the other is this big partnership that Blue Origin's running for something called Orbital Reef. Uh, their big partner is Sierra Nevada, or Sierra Space now, who has the Dream Chaser spacecraft that we'll see take off with cargo in the next year or two. Uh, but this is a huge idea from Blue Origin that is to build out a destination in low Earth orbit that anyone can add on to. So they're essentially saying, we're going to build out the core of this space station. We have some partners in Sierra Space and Boeing for habitation and science modules, but Blue Origin is going to be the backbone of this space station. It's going to have a bunch of docking ports, and if you would like to build something and put it up in space, you can join the orbital reef, I guess would be the way that they they put it, uh, and add on your module to this. So the idea is to have a a private, a commercial international space station, um, and they are going to be using... Uh, huge modules to do this. So the New Glenn's fairing is about seven meters wide, which is much larger than vehicles that are flying today. So the core module of these space stations are going to be about six meters wide, which is basically double the diameter that we see on the International Space Station. So much larger habitats, but of course that depends on New Glenn and I guess maybe Starship. It could fit in there, hypothetically, if something happened to New Glenn. Uh, It depends on these new generation of vehicles being able to lift that size of something uh, to space. So Blue Origin says they're going to be developing this regardless of NASA funding. They do have this NASA funding right now that takes them through the design phase and hopefully to launch in a couple of years. Uh, Although the funding side of that that NASA is working with uh, Congress on is tough to come by at the current moment. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible to imagine a space station that large at this <laughs> this point, right? I mean, that's huge. That is going to be big. Yeah, it, it makes me think of, uh, if you've seen the old footage of Skylab back in the day, there was uh, some footage. It's one of my favorite videos from space where one of the astronauts was able to run around the outside of the space station, a la 2001 A Space Odyssey, and makes you think, like, what kind of hijinks people can get up to with that much room to uh, float around up there. <laughs> or get stuck in, in the middle of it, right? <laughs> my, yeah, my terrifyingly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about something a little bit smaller, um, some small launch vehicles, or smaller launch vehicles. Um, there's a handful of them um, either, you know, doing very well um, or getting ready to come online. I want to start with Rocket Lab. Um, Rocket Lab has had kind of a, an incredible success story recently and has uh, a, a new vehicle coming online. What, what do we know about uh Rocket Lab's future. Yeah, so this one's called Neutron. It's it's much larger. This would be in the class of Falcon 9, so it would be basically a direct competitor to Falcon 9 and, and kind of looks like if uh, Falcon 9 was designed for reusability from the start, 
some of the decisions that they made is are very different than what Falcon 9 started at, which was an expendable launch vehicle that eventually grew landing legs and eventually could land on a boat and eventually could be reused. But none of that was really in the plans uh, on the first launch of Falcon 9. Neutron, on the other hand, is Rocket Lab taking what they've learned with their small vehicle Electron, realizing that this larger size class might be helpful for them in the market, as we've seen the, the growth of mega constellations of constellations of thousands of satellites that need a lot of lift capacity. Uh, but they want to do it with reusability in mind this time. So it's an interesting looking design. It is very futuristic looking. Um, the fairing itself, the nose cone, stays attached to the first stage. So it's kind of fully encapsulated. Uh, it launches up and, and flies very typical uh, Falcon 9 trajectory where it launches up, releases the second stage and the payload, and then would return to the launch site uh, and you know, it's really cool looking because all the fairings stay attached. So it's this very futuristic sci-fi looking rocket that would eventually li- release a second stage that can lift about eight tons to low Earth orbit, uh, which is a pretty healthy margin for things like constellations or even like human space flight. Uh, that's a really interesting size range for a company that for so long has focused on the smaller end. Um, but we're seeing that throughout that small launch industry, the, the people that chose a couple hundred kilograms to space are realizing that they might want a launch vehicle that can do a couple of tons. Uh, and as the market shifts, we'll see which one of those things shake out to be successful. Um, but all in all, I think a, a vehicle built in 2022 to 2025 range that is ideally focused on reusability in that size class has a good opportunity of doing well because we've seen that size class be so successful for so long. Uh, but now they're able to take this new age thinking and really focus in on on reuse. Mm-hmm. And two more uh, companies that that I'm particularly interested in coming online shortly is Astra. Um, what do we know about their future in 2022? I mean, we're getting close to launch. Yeah, Astra's done a couple of launches so far. A couple of them went pretty pretty interestingly sideways. Uh, they are now an orbital company. They did make orbit on their last launch, and I know as the Florida boy that you are, you are excited to see them uh, take off from Cape Canaveral. They have a launch coming up. In just a couple of weeks, I think it is, maybe even sooner than that. My timelines are wrong, but um, Astra is really cool because they have what's called containerized launch. So instead of building a single dedicated launch pad, they have hardware that they can travel around with. So that's allowed them to do a couple of launch attempts out of Alaska. They then packaged up all that hardware and they can take it over to Cape Canaveral, do a launch out of there. You know, in the future, they could package that up, go to California, do a launch out of there, and then fly back to the East Coast. So the idea is that they can be very mobile. Basically, if you have access to the fuel that you need, if you've got some power and you've got a flat concrete pad, they can launch from you know your backyard if, if you really wanted them to, I guess. Mm-hmm. And finally, Anthony, our listeners uh, are used to hearing you on the Main Engine Cutoff podcast, um, but uh, where else can we connect with you? Yeah, Off Nominal is a fun podcast that I should mention here because you've been on it a handful of times, and we just started a new thing called Off Nominal Happy Hour. Uh, every Thursday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern, you can find us live on YouTube, youtube.com slash offnominal. We're going to be hanging out with people that make interesting stuff in space, talk about their projects, uh, talk about some of the current events going on. But just generally, we're going weekly, which is going to be a lot of fun with me and my co-host Jake. A lot of interesting guests, and hopefully you'll be on sometime in the new year so people can check you out uh, over there. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in space, and I love Off Nominal, and so happy to <laughs> to hear that there's going to be a weekly show. And, you know, you don't have to twist my arm to have beers with you guys, so I'll be there. <laughs> so. <laughs> Absolutely. It'll be so much fun. Anthony Colangelo is the host of the Main Engine Cutoff podcast and also the co-host of Off Nominal. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks again. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you missed any part of our conversations, listen back online or be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. 
You can do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or just visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.